0: So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Welcome to the History of Witchcraft. Episode 18, Halloween from pagan to Christian to party. Here used to stand a lofty idol that saw many a fight whose name was the Krum Cruach. It caused every tribe to live without peace. Alas for its secret power The valiant Gael used to worship it. He was their god, the wizened Krum, hidden by many mists. As for the folk that believed in him, the eternal kingdom beyond every haven shall not be theirs. For him, ingloriously, they slew their hapless firstborn, with much wailing and peril, to pour their blood round Krumkruach one Samhain Eve. Welcome to the History of Witchcraft podcast. In today's episode, we'll be taking a look at the fascinating development of the Halloween festival, celebrated in various forms throughout the Western world. Halloween is the one event of the year that makes it socially acceptable for a grown man, such as myself, to wander around in fancy dress without getting stopped by police. The festival, as it is practised in most of the English-speaking world, involves costumes, games, fireworks, and sweets, and your stereotypical image of Halloween may involve trick-or-treating, carved pumpkin lanterns, and various spooky outfits. As to why I've decided to make it to the topic of an episode of the History of Witchcraft, well, there are a couple of reasons. Firstly, one of the classic costumes for kids and adults to wear for Halloween is that of a witch, Pointy rubber nose, pointed hat, a broomstick, and maybe a wand, you know how it looks. Admittedly, this is a bit of a tenuous link. This is the history of witchcraft after all, not the history of tacky and historically inaccurate caricatures. But this is where the second reason comes in. The history of Halloween is full of magic and superstition, and is based on traditions several hundred years old, with its earliest roots going back thousands. There is some debate about the earliest roots of Halloween, with some scholars seeing its origin in Roman festivals, particularly the Feast of Pomona, the goddess of fruits and seeds, or the festival of the dead, Parentalia. However, the generally accepted origin of Halloween is a merger of the Christian practices of venerating the hallowed dead and ancient Celtic rites surrounding a seasonal harvest festival, Samhain. Samhain, which is spelt S-A-M-H-A-I-N, and which I believed was pronounced Samhain until I was informed otherwise, was a feast practised by Celtic peoples throughout the ancient British Isles, Gaul, and possibly in the other well-travelled Celtic tribes in Iberia, Anatolia, and Italy. Generally speaking, Samhain was an annual festival, usually held around the end of October and the beginning of November, when the Celts came together to celebrate the end of summer and prepare for the darkness of winter. This gathering involved drinking, dancing, feasting, and appears to have been a normal part of the Celtic calendar. It also has, like most things connected to druids, been said to have involved ritualistic human sacrifice to appease the gods, although, like most things connected to Druids, this is possibly a fabrication proposed by their political enemies, the Romans, or their later theological opponents, the Christian Church. In dealing with an ancient folklore-based festival conducted by an ancient preliterate people, it's tricky to establish what actually occurred at a Samhain festival. It may be easiest to begin with the things that are the most likely to be correct, and then to discuss the things that Samhain probably did not involve. Of course, bear in mind that these practices would vary from place to place, year to year, as these things tended to do without a strict orthodoxy being enforced. If Samhain was celebrated by Celts in Iberia, for example, it might not have borne any resemblance to the festival held in Ireland. Additionally, Druidic society existed for centuries, and naturally practices would evolve or die out prior to being recorded by our sources. With these caveats in mind, let's look at what historians generally believe Samhain to have involved. The first criticism often levelled at Samhain, which we've already alluded to, is that it involved human sacrifice. The evidence for this view can be found in the remains discovered throughout the British Isles of bodies that appear to have been killed in unusual ways. Piles of heads had been found at the sites of temples. Pits under the floor of festival sites at Tara, County Meath in Ireland, were discovered filled with the bones of animals and humans. And in 1984, the Lindo Man was found at a peat bog, beaten, garroted, and then dumped into the preservative marshland, all of which has been argued to show a ritual significance. But other interpretations are available. In the contemporary accounts of the Celts, mostly written by Romans such as Julius Caesar and Strabo, are recounted tales of mass sacrifice of captured enemies, offerings of first-born children to the gods, and bizarre rituals such as the Wickerman, man, which involved a gigantic figure made of thatch, into which dozens of willing or unwilling people were placed, with the whole idol then set alight. The Roman accounts are tempting to dismiss as propaganda for the war effort, Julius Caesar, after all, spent much of his life fighting the Celts in Gaul and Britain, and had a vested interest in depicting his enemies as barbaric and in need of civilising. His account of the Wicker Man has come under fire, pun fully intended, from historians as being entirely fabricated, while his descriptions of other Druidic practices have not survived with academic scrutiny well. Some historians have suggested that the Celts did not practice human sacrifice at all, and that it was instead the Romans projecting their own cultural history onto the Celts. However, the archaeological evidence scattered throughout Britain does suggest that elements of Celtic culture or religion required the ritual sacrifice of their fellow man. Of course, we have no way of knowing if human sacrifice was an established part of Samhain in particular, or whether such events were part of everyday life in Celtic society. There are few references to human sacrifice in the earliest Irish texts, although there are mentions of tributes to supernatural races and gods, and in some cases, these divine beings demanded the spilling of blood for their favour. The Fomorians, a race of supernatural beings similar to the Jotun of Norse mythology, demanded a tribute of milk, corn, and two thirds of the children of the Nemedians, an ancient people that were meant to have inhabited Ireland before the Celts. Notably, The 17th century writer Geoffrey Keating states that this tribute was owed on the eve of each Samhain. Keating's work has, however, been largely dismissed by modern scholarship for being too romanticised and sometimes outright fictional. More explicit descriptions of human sacrifice on Samhain can be found in the collection of poems called the Din Shenkas, which is believed to have been originally composed by a Christian monk in the 5th century. Friend of the show, Joe Byrne, one of the three hosts of this spectacular 80 Days podcast, was kind enough to lend his authentic Irish charm to the excerpt at the beginning of today's show. More on how to listen to their show at the end of the episode. In the poems, the first-born children of Celtic communities were to be sacrificed, each Samhain, to an idol, Crom Cruach, which translates to Lord of the Mound. While a suitably ominous tale that has spawned folk tales and folk metal bands aplenty, If this text was indeed written by an early Christian monk, then it is possible, if not likely, that certain elements were exaggerated to inflate the success of the patron saint of Ireland, St. Patrick, who was credited with ending the practice of human sacrifice by converting its people to Christianity. By depicting a land where thousands of infants were sacrificed annually for the favour of pagan gods, St. Patrick's conversion of Ireland becomes a much greater achievement, So we can safely assume that Celtic society had at least some aspects of human sacrifice within it, and that the Druids, as elders and leaders in their communities, most likely had a role in these ritualistic executions. However, the more extravagant practices described by the Romans are likely invented by the authors for political reasons, and so cannot be considered wholly reliable. Whether Samhain itself was a particular catalyst for human sacrifice is more of a mystery. As a harvest festival, It is highly likely that excess cattle and livestock would be slaughtered at these gatherings, as a slab of mutton is much easier to keep through winter than a live sheep. It is possible that some of the animals may have been offered to the gods and ritually slaughtered, but it is equally plausible that mass slaughter was a purely secular affair, with the only ceremony involved being the merriment and feasting. As a transitional festival, that is, the marking of the transition from summer into winter, Samhain became an important time for the supernatural to be abroad in the land. As well as the previously mentioned Fomorians, the pagan Irish knew of the existence of an underworld, the Cid, which was the domain of the Aos Sea, fairies, elves, and spirits that inhabited Ireland before the Celts arrived. The two peoples fought a war, which the Celts won, and the AOC retreated beneath the ground, inhabiting the mounds and barrows that dot the island. One theory is that this was actually an ancient migratory war, and that the AOC were actually a race of people that were conquered and integrated by the invading Celts, and that over centuries of oral history, the war took on supernatural elements. During Samhain, the AOC were able to return to their former land, fairies became visible, opening paths between the surface and the underworld, and monsters roamed the countryside. A veritable army of evil birds, led by a three-headed vulture with breath so foul that crops died from it, would emerge to prey on mankind. It is over Samhain that many mythical events occurred in the Irish sagas. For example, an AOC called Aelan would emerge from the Cid every Samhain and after casting a spell to make everyone celebrating on the hill of Tara fall asleep, burned them all alive. This happened every year, until a man called Fion poisoned himself with his own spear to stay awake, and then killed the supernatural arsonist. Now, personally, if every year people got burnt alive on this hill, I'd stop hosting my parties there, but then it wouldn't be as good a story, would it? So, Samhain was a festival hosted at the halfway point between the autumn equinox and the winter solstice, then involved feasting and drinking, and highly active supernatural creatures. Like many events in Celtic society, there may have been some amount of human sacrifice, although any executions could just as likely be criminal in nature. Samhain was an event that brought all the local communities together, and such was important for enacting new laws, breaking news, and the punishment of notable criminals. These are the things that appear most convincing in the current historiography, and so now we get to do some debunking and talk about what Samhain was almost certainly not. Firstly, Samhain was not a Satanist festival, and therefore neither is Halloween, despite what some moralistic fearmongers have declared over the last few decades. Satanism itself, that is the worship of the Lucifer of the Abrahamic faiths, is an Abrahamic concept. The pagan people of Ireland would not be holding festivals to honour an entity they would never have even heard of. If the pagan Irish were unknowingly worshipping the Christian devil, you would imagine that such an annual event would stand out, even in early Christian Europe, where many pagan traditions were tolerated and adapted. Yet there were very few accusations of satanic cults until the late medieval era, certainly long after the last pagan celebrations of Samhain. Church concerns over the festival were solely regarding its pagan origins, rather than any satanic influences. The question of whether Samhain was dedicated to a particular deity is somewhat more complex, however, in my inexpert opinion, this is still unlikely. The Lord of the Mound, Krom Cruach, discussed earlier is most likely theological propaganda, an evil foil to the noble efforts of St. Patrick to Christianise Ireland, or perhaps caused by the confusion over the Eos Sea. It has also been proposed that Samhain was held in the honour of Saman, the god of the dead, although this has largely been dismissed by historians as a simple translation error in the word Samhain. Likewise dismissed is the idea that Samhain was devoted to the veneration of the dead, or ancestor worship. This has been put down to the merging of Samhain and All Hallows' Eve, which we'll examine in a moment. The historian Nicholas Rogers suggests that if the festival was dedicated to anyone, it would be to a pagan god called Dagda, who, through his divine intercourse with three goddesses, protects the crops from disease, although Rogers himself admits that this is, in his words, extremely conjectural. Samhain may have provided some of the supernatural elements of the later Halloween, but it was the development of All Saints and All Souls Day that provided many of the ritual aspects of the festival. All saints and all souls, despite their later combination, were separate events that came about at different times. All saints was commemorated throughout Western Christendom by at least 800 CE, and in 998 CE, the Abbot of Cluny Abbey, Odillo, ordered a mass for all of the Christian souls that had passed rather than just those venerated as saints. All souls, or All Hallows Day. Many of the festivals of the Christian calendar had their dates chosen in order to take advantage of pre-existing pagan celebrations, and the same has been said about All Saints Day. In Ireland, All Saints Day originally fell in the middle of April, but in Germany and England, from the first references to a dedicated day to venerate the souls of all the saints, the day landed on the 1st of November, corresponding with the traditional day for Samhain. But before we leap to conclusions that this is because of Samhain, in Germany and England, the cultural basis for this assumption is just simply not there. England had been Anglo-Saxon rather than Celtic for centuries by the 9th century, and had gained a large influx of Scandinavian culture due to, you know, Viking invasion, while Germany had never had Celtic dominance, even during the diaspora of the Celts in antiquity. If anything could explain the shared date, and this is purely an assumption on my part, I have to say, it's most likely the same reason that the beginning of November became Samhain in the first place. It was a symbolic time of year. All Souls Day, when originally introduced by Odillo, was held in February. But within the next 200 years, All Souls was moved to the day, after All Saints, as the saints were thought to be able to ease the posthumous experiences of the Christian dead. Gradually, the two dates became a single event across Christendom, in England, both days became known jointly as Tide. The 1st of November was All Hallows' Day, while the 31st of October lost its status as the preeminent of the two days and became known as All Hallows' Eve. It was an evolution of this name, All Hallows' Eve, that became Hallow-Eve, that became Halloween, which is why you may sometimes see Halloween with an apostrophe before the een, a surviving remnant of the two combined words. Isn't language fun? All Hallows Day was just one of six days of masses and prayers, all efforts by the living to assist the dead in the afterlife. Such masses were on the assumption that a soul's time in purgatory could be shortened by the actions of the living. Such prayers were often thought to prevent hauntings by ghosts as well, as these spirits might return to harass their surviving family until amends were made for wrongs committed during their lives, or just to remind them of their family bonds, which is lovely in its own morbid way. The ceremonies surrounding Hallowmas, another term for All Souls Day, would seek forgiveness for any wrongs as well as reminding lost loved ones that they were remembered. During the dark hours of All Hallows' Eve, church bells would be rung, sometimes all night, to scare away demonic forces, which may be a holdover from the myths surrounding Samhain. Like today, Hallowtide celebrations had regional differences. In England, churches were known to order excess candles for their local night processions, In Brittany, these processions would involve people scattering milk and holy water over the graves of their family. In Naples, charnel houses, buildings full of the bones of the dead, were opened to the public to be filled with flowers and the corpses dressed in fine clothes. Elsewhere in Italy, food was left out in people's homes, as the spirits of the departed were thought to return on All Souls Day. Similarly to Sow-in, Hallowtide was often the point of the year at which livestock was slaughtered, and this was a time of great merriment, full of feasting and games. According to Rogers, when a village butchered their animals, there were plenty of bladders to go around, which could be filled with air, tied off, and then kicked around, beginning the England football season. Another aspect of the playful nature of Hallowtide was impersonation. Choir boys dressed up as their bishops and priests, and preached to the probably slightly drunk congregations, while others took on the roles of mayors and sheriffs, Jokily enacting new ridiculous laws and appointing one of their fellows a lord of misrule. This newly raised-up lord would then lead a mob dressed in ribbons, scarves, and bells around the town, essentially going trick-or-treating. Townsfolk would have their houses surrounded, and the mob would demand tribute to, and I quote, "...maintain their heathenry, devilry, and drunkenness." If the probably terrified townsperson refused, they were mocked, and ridiculed, and in some cases dunked in water. This could be a pond, a river, or just a water barrel. We don't know how common this sort of behaviour actually was, but mob humiliation of unpopular figures in society certainly seems to have occurred across Christendom. Another case of mob justice appears in a village near Geneva in 1631, when a husband had allowed his wife to act like the head of the household. The man was placed backwards on a horse, his hands tied to the horse's tail, while someone dressed up as his wife and hit him with a stick. The poor man's ordeal was not over yet, as after he complained to the authorities about this palaver, his house was pelted with rocks, his vineyard vandalised, and, rather oddly, someone sold his cow. His error was appealing to outsiders. This was a local matter, and he had ruined the fun by telling tales. After this event, both husband and wife were subjected to verbal abuse, with his wife regularly being called a witch. All Hallows' Eve was celebrated throughout Western Christendom until the coming of the Protestant Reformation. All Hallows' Eve was considered by some Protestant thinkers and lawmakers to be contrary to the belief in predestination, the concept that your eternal soul is already marked for either heaven or hell, and there is nothing you or anyone else can do about it. Singing prayers and leaving offerings for the dead was an attempt to change the fate of your loved one's souls, which was simply superstition and would not do. As such, many of the rituals related to All Hallows' Eve were banned by Protestant monarchs such as Edward VI and Elizabeth I of England. Still, just because the king or queen said you couldn't do something you and your family had enjoyed for generations doesn't mean you just stopped, and in Wales, the north of England, Scotland, and basically everywhere in Protestant lands that was not within spitting distance of a bishop or king, continued the popular traditions with only minor changes. There were also the occasional violent resistance to attempts by the authorities to enforce the law, such as in 1604 when an official was attacked in Somerset for attempting to break up a Hallowtide party. By the end of the 17th century, the religious aspects of Halloween, as it had now come to be known, had begun to wane, and in their place remained the supernatural. Halloween was still the most likely time for spirits, witches and demons to be out and about, and the practice of burning candles and bonfires to scare away malevolent forces remained common. Also prevalent was the belief that the night provided certain prophetic gifts. Those who were doomed to die over the next year would appear as spirits or shadowy shapes on Halloween. A woman born on this day would be able to see the future, and the harshness of the coming winter could be predicted from the weather on Halloween night. More positive predictions also took place over Halloween, particularly around marriage. English women might put a sprig of rosemary or a bent coin under their pillows on Halloween in order to dream about their future husbands. Others would throw a ball of wool through an open window, and whichever man picked it up and whispered his name would become her husband, which seems an awfully flippant way of choosing your marriage partner. Another way to divine your future love life was to drip molten lead into a pail of water, although Rogers does not explain quite how these predictions would work. In Scotland, it was popular for young people to cast a pair of chestnuts into the fire, predicting their future based on how the nuts burned. However, gradually Halloween was eclipsed in England by the more popular and state-supported 5th of November celebrations, known as Bonfire Night or Guy Fawkes Night, For those unaware, the Gunpowder Plot was an attempt to assassinate King James VI and I in 1605 by blowing up the Houses of Parliament in London while he was present. The plot was foiled, and the conspirators, Catholic to a man, suffered grisly ends, but their failure is celebrated every year on the date of their attempt, the 5th of November. Like Halloween, the celebrations involved fires, masks, and partying, and often had the full support of authorities as a victory of Protestantism over Catholicism, unlike Halloween, which suffered from its Catholic and pagan roots. In Ireland and Scotland, however, where Protestantism was either a minority or there was more difficulty in enforcing its stricter rules, Halloween remained prominent, In Scotland, which took up the celebration of Bonfire Night perhaps even more zealously than the English, as after all, King James was a Scottish king before he was an English one, November 5th partnered with Halloween into a week of celebration. The supernatural element of the night remained popular, as did the tradition of visiting neighbours while wearing masks. In Ireland, where Samhain had lasted longest and where Protestants were a powerful minority, it is perhaps understandable that Guy Fawkes' night was less popular. Let's just say that Ireland has a troubled history with Catholics and Protestants. Catholics were hardly going to be fond of celebrating the gruesome executions of their brothers in faith, while for Protestants there were many more important dates to commemorate, such as the Battle of the Boyne or the Defence of Londonderry. As such, the more popular aspects of Bonfire Night, particularly the bonfires themselves, as well as the burning of effigies, became part of the celebration of Halloween, mirroring the transference of traditions between holidays that took place in England the pagan customs of Halloween experienced something of a revival in Scotland and Ireland from the 17th century onwards. In Scotland, the bonfires were lit on stone cairns or atop hills, with villagers dancing in the ashes afterwards. Torchlit processions took place through fields of crops, not to support the souls of lost loved ones, such as at the old Hallowtide events, but rather to ward off malignant spirits and witches who sought to blight them. In Ireland in particular, Halloween had begun to take on aspects of the Celtic Samhain. Fire rituals described in the ancient Irish sagas became more prevalent, with cattle being branded in the old way to purify them. A difference was seen between All Souls, which was much more to the style of Halitide, based on the reverence of the dearly departed, and Halloween, which was a time of omens and magic. The difference between the events was never clear-cut, even for the Church, as priests often warned their congregations on Halloween to be careful on the way home, as wandering spirits, both the magical and the souls of the dead, were roaming the countryside. Halloween in Britain and Ireland was never uniformly practiced, especially once the tumult of the Reformation took place, with authorities cracking down on traditions or relaxing their restrictions, depending on their location and the strength of those traditions. In England, with its urban centres throughout the South and the Midlands, the church and secular authorities found enforcing the restrictions easier than their colleagues in the north, Scotland and Ireland, who often found that discretion was the better part of valour. There, a strange merger of Catholic beliefs and borderline pagan traditions led to a vibrant festival, and likewise even the comparative success of the authorities in urban areas simply led to an evolution of the festival. It moved to dates, and changed just enough for the authorities to accept. One of these variants on Samhain that still survives, in a mongrel form even today, can be found on the lovely island of the Isle of Man. It is a place with a rich culture and history, and I don't just say that because I was born there. The island, situated in the centre of the British Isles, has the longest continuously held parliament in the world, set up by the Vikings, was the first country to grant women the vote in 1881, beating New Zealand by 12 years, and hosts the most exciting and lethal road race in the world, the TT Races. By the way, the Department of Tourism can get in touch if they want to be an official sponsor. Instead of Halloween, many inhabitants of the island celebrate Hop Chune although this has more similarities with Halloween than most of the Manx would care to admit. I remember being told by several adults not to celebrate Halloween, as it was a barbaric American custom, and instead to enjoy Hop Chune After researching this episode, the irony of this prejudice is not lost on me, and thankfully this attitude has largely disappeared tune involves carved turnip lanterns, as well as traditional foods like dum cake, called such not because the maker is stupid, but because they're not supposed to speak while it bakes. Children still travel the neighbourhoods trick-or-treating, and largely the customs of both Hoptuné and Halloween are celebrated in equal amounts. It was the large-scale immigration of Irish, as well as consistent migration of Scots, to the east coast of Canada and the US throughout the 19th century that brought Halloween to the New World particularly zealous Protestants such as the Puritans that dominated New England were unable to condone a tradition that smacked so strongly of papist themes, and the belief in the superstitious elements of All Souls Day was strongly frowned upon. It was only with the arrival of the Celts and numbers that Halloween appears in the records as having been celebrated. Such a mix of Irish and Scots, of Catholics and Protestants in the immigrant communities of Boston, Montreal, New York and Toronto might lead you to expect some tension between the groups and you'd be correct. The inflammatory nature of both the Boyne commemorations in June and St. Patrick's Day in March both coincided with multiple brawls and riots. However, Halloween had no divisions. It was a pan-Celtic festival with few religious overtones, and so was rarely the cause of much cultural or religious strife. Secular strife, however, was a different story. Despite the efforts of the various Irish and Scottish societies that were active across the North American continent, who sought to remould Halloween along civil and nationalist lines, Halloween remained a raucous affair. The old traditions of nut burning and divination remained, however they became largely a method of entertainment, without a widespread belief in their accuracy. The traditions of wearing masks and committing vandalism remained strong. From at least the 1860s, mobs of men and women, cross-dressing, costumed or wearing masks, were reported as an annual sight at Halloween in Philadelphia, which, the newspaper added, would have horrified the Quaker founders of the city. While it was most popular in the cities with large Celtic populations, towards the end of the 19th century, Halloween had gained its place as an American event. One newspaper in 1878 quipped that, Despite the countryside being far too forested for the spirits and fairies, and I quote, "...American ingenuity has devised an acceptable substitute. So, if anyone failed to see dancing fairies and witches innumerable last evening, it is because he did not make a tour of the parlours of his acquaintances." End quote. The market for costumes and masks was pandered to as early as 1874 in Ontario, for example, and by 1890, many stores stocked up on the varieties of nuts, cakes, fruit, and chocolate in preparation for the demand. It was around this time that the turnip, the traditional vegetable for hollowing out and making into a lantern, was usurped by the now inviolate pumpkin. This new type of jack-o'-lantern was used exactly like the old, carried by those visiting their neighbours to receive tribute, however the tribute had now changed. Now, the usual fare were the cakes, fruits, and nuts that became the staple of the festival, In return for the treats, the householder would get a performance of singing or dancing from the groups. The tradition of pranks and general tomfoolery was a central aspect of the Halloween night in North America, ranging from the classic stealing vegetables to the more dangerous pranks, such as greasing the lines of freight trains and tramcars. Particularly ambitious lads would find ways of putting a farmer's carts and tools on the roof of their barns, and in cities, delivery vehicles were just stolen from where the owner had left them. These tricks were somewhat tolerated by the authorities as part of the Halloween tradition, at least until the turn of the century. There were cases where police forces intervened, with the Halifax police giving one band of revellers, quote, a bad scare, end quote, but declining to arrest anyone. Bonfires within city limits were often put out for safety reasons, and pranksters that interfered with rail lines or cart tracks would be rebuked for the same reason, although this, again, rarely led to arrests. In 1872, a Kingston newspaper reported on the antics of Halloween revelers who had traipsed through the town knocking down fences and ripping the awnings from shops, declaring that this was merely serious play and that lads would be lads. However, don't think that Halloween in the 19th century was similar to a purge night. It was not completely lawless, and some people were punished for actions they committed during the festivities, and towards the close of the century, the cases of these instances rose. In 1868, a Kingston man was hauled into court to explain his actions on Halloween. He had clubbed a boy over the head after the boy and his friends had pelted his house with mud, knocked on his door repeatedly, and threw dead cats into his garden, The magistrate considered this an excessive response, and the man was fined $2 for his clearly unprovoked violence. However, the boys did not get off scot-free, oh no no no, the magistrate gave them a telling off, a very, very harsh telling off indeed that was almost certainly not taken the least bit seriously. Two years later, three boys were fined $3 for each throwing stones at the window of a Mary Shippy, as well as at Mary Shippy herself when one shopkeeper had enough and demanded that the police arrest a boy on Halloween, a mob of over 300 people surrounded the police station demanding his release. Public and legal opinion was changing, and increasingly vandalism committed over the previously sacrosanct Halloween night is found discussed in the courts. In Ontario, a householder was compensated by the boys that had moved his outhouse into the nearby woods, and in Hamilton, a group of boys and girls were brought to court after riding a bobsleigh down the roof of someone's house. One of the boys complained, saying he did not think it was fair to be punished as he thought, quote, he would not be punished as it was Halloween. After a particularly damaging Halloween in 1902, the merchants of Kingston brought enough pressure on the authorities for special constables to be sworn in for the duration of each Halloween, attitudes across the border were equally mixed, with many newspapers chastising those that wanted to dampen the spirits of Halloween revellers, telling them, you were a youngster once upon a time yourself. However, others were not so accepting of the traditions, and one paper advocated that trick-or-treaters be shot, good and proper, if they entered your property. The article actually suggests using either a musket, or if you can't find one, a cannon, which seems a tad excessive but also hilarious. As with many things, the university students just had to get involved. In both Canada and the US, university students had their own yearly traditions for the holiday. Most followed similar lines as the ones we've already looked at. Vandalism, drinking, masks, but the students had the added advantage of being well-connected. In those days, most people attending universities were wealthy and protected, and so the students acted as if they owned the place. And some of them actually did, repeatedly informing the police officers that were sent to curb their antics. And what antics they were, shielded from most repercussions as the students were. In 1907, at Northwestern University, Illinois, 31 students were arrested after hosing down the Divinity students while they slept, probably for not joining in the fun. In Chicago students climbed a smokestack over 130 feet tall to plant their respective class flags, and at Ann Arbor medical students stole bodies from the morgue for tricks and decoration, including a headless woman. While obviously not respectful and likely not what the body donor had in mind, it certainly would have made that Halloween party realistic. In 1880s in Toronto, students began to fill the boxes of local theatres on Halloween, catcalling and hissing like they were at a pantomime. For the performers, this was obviously highly distracting, but the rest of the audience appeared to have enjoyed it, accepting it as a tradition. The tradition escalated year on year, with banners being suspended under the gallery, or a skeleton being draped over the side. Once, a live chicken was thrown into the stalls. Mockeries were made of existing theatre traditions. The leading lady was meant to receive bouquets of flowers from the audience, and one year the students presented her with a skull and crossbones made out of flowers. In Montreal, they upped the game, emptying what is described as a small flower shop onto the poor woman. Other students were a bit more tame in their celebrations. A Halloween barbecue included the participants dressed as witches from Macbeth, surrounding a boiling cauldron, while students from the Detroit College of Medicine went on a parade through the town square, quote, dressed grotesquely. Halloween was also a time for some light hazing of new students, as the majority of courses began at this time of year. New York University had a tradition that freshmen were paraded in front of the dean, made to announce their name and age, sing the school's song, and were then thrown into a nearby fountain. In Toronto, when not invading theatres, the more romantic-minded students would serenade the female students at the elite girl schools of the city. While at first glance the actions of these university students appeared to be roughly in line with those of the city workers, there was little sympathy between the two groups. Rogers mentions a time in 1903 when the students of McGill College crossed the river into Montreal before being chased out by the locals, with some students being forced to swim across the river, with roughly 50 being reported injured. What arrived in North America as a slightly pagan festival for immigrants had evolved by the 1920s into a recognised part of the calendar for all parts of the continent. In 1908, over $250,000 of damage was caused by Halloween revelers just in Texas, far from the concentrations of Celtic immigrants that had first brought the festival to the country, and in 1910, adverts for Californian shops stocking Halloween supplies appear. Introducing Halloween to the political calendar was no doubt partly a pragmatic decision, as it was both incredibly popular among the more numerous immigrant groups of the Irish and Scottish, but not isolated to one ethnic or religious group, and so avoided giving the cold shoulder to others. Halloween also benefited from a lack of competition. Christmas, Thanksgiving, and the 4th of July, which all at one point involved similar antics to Halloween in their early days, all suffered from losing their improvised nature. Celebrations gained some decorum and became more refined, and became much more boring because of it. While Mardi Gras, celebrated in New Orleans, and involving mass parties was rarely celebrated elsewhere, Halloween remained pure and unmolested, at least for a time, and was popular countrywide. The more destructive elements of the festival were not going to go away. Dressing up and visiting neighbours for sweets was still a central aspect of the celebration, but this was mainly for younger children. The older boys, and it was mostly boys, would continue the tradition of vandalism and theft, Throughout the interwar years, Canada and the US both enjoyed the annual destruction of fences and the toppling of outhouses. Rogers refers to one Canadian historian who admitted to pushing over at least 14 outhouses in one Halloween night in the 30s. Residents would often wake up the day after Halloween to find that any furniture left outside was now hanging from telephone poles, and that the path to work had been barricaded and closed off. With the prevalence of motor vehicles in the interwar years, Halloween revellers gained more targets for their pranks. Manhole covers were removed, fake diversions were installed, traffic lights removed, and the cars themselves had their tyres deflated or windows covered in oil. In the 30s, an odd division had grown in the minds of those on the receiving end of Halloween pranks. Some were ardently supportive of the nocturnal activities, echoing the 1872 Kingston paper with their attitude of, "'Boys will be boys.' looking back on their younger antics and bearing few grudges for the pranks. However, there were a growing number of incidents where Halloween revellers were on the receiving end of harsh justice, both official and otherwise. In Toronto in 1936, seven boys were jailed by police for pelting a newly painted veranda with tomatoes, which caused an uproar amongst the citizenry. They declared that the police had been too heavy-handed, however, the police response has to be considered next to the demands of the many other Toronto civilians to curb the antisocial behaviour of the night. The 30s appeared to have been a time where more residents took matters into their own hands. In 1933, multiple farmers in Ontario and Welland repeatedly shot into the crowds of revellers that were pelting their houses with stones, wounding roughly eight people altogether. Four years later, in 1937, one man shot and killed a boy that he had repeatedly told to leave his property alone. The papers lapped these stories up, and towards the end of the decade, Halloween had progressed along the path to civility, kind of. Halloween was also often a time for race riots. In 1931, in Nashville, North Carolina, in Harlem, New York City, 1934, and the Asian communities of Chinese and Japanese in Vancouver were repeatedly the victims of white revellers, mobbing their neighbourhoods and looting from their stores throughout the 30s. Despite both Canada and the US being involved in the Second World War, Halloween revelling was not dampened by the conflict. Indeed, in the major cities of the East Coast, Halloween repeatedly led to riots and mass arson, with both police and rioters being injured in large numbers. Something we can see after examining the history of the festival is the blatant attempts after more destructive Halloween nights to rewrite the history of the event. Many papers declared that Halloween had always been a children's holiday, and that teenagers and adults were trying to usurp that in order to excuse their drunken vandalism, which is clearly not true. If anything, the role of children trick-or-treating was the interloper into a formerly adult event. After denigrating the role of adults in Halloween events, Efforts were then made to steer the energies of children into less destructive activities, such as painting windows instead of smashing them. Trick-or-treating became the activity that authorities could accept, and by the 1950s the consumerist nature of Halloween that we know today was established. Children would visit their neighbours, say trick-or-treat, and have no expectation of either being refused to treat or really knowing what a trick would involve. The economic boom of the post-war years led to families being able to afford more extravagant get-ups than merely blackening their child's faces with ashes as had previously been the norm. UNICEF was the benefactor of collection drives that children also took part in during Halloween, adding yet more respectability to the festival. Such respectability was dashed after reports swarmed the media in the 1960s and 70s of apples filled with razors and needles, and cyanide and heroin-dosed sweets. Truth be told, there were deaths and injuries related to dangerous treats, but they were minuscule in number, and the most famous were committed not by strangers, but close family who used Halloween as an excuse to harm their child. Still, the fun had been tarnished by the worry that maybe, just maybe, that apple might kill your child. Rogers argues that the panic over Halloween sadists was more cultural than caused purely by the media. The 50s were held up as the genial, pleasant, community oriented time where Halloween was pure and innocent fun. It was also a time of economic growth, social stability, and relative international peace, as far as the US suburbia was concerned. In contrast, the 60s and 70s involved the battle for civil rights, the Vietnam War, counterculture of hippies, feminism, and gay rights, and a perceived increase in crime. Strangers could simply not be trusted anymore, the thinking went. The good old days were gone. Halloween certainly has its critics, even today. Its pagan roots are held up by some as evidence of its dangers, and each year reports abound, begging someone to please think of the children after the latest myth appears of anthrax in a boy's lollipop or something like that. Still, Halloween has its supporters who see the festival for what it is – a time for children and adults to dress up, have fun, and enjoy themselves, which has been something relatively consistent for centuries, albeit with different views on what to dress as and how to have fun. So there you have it. Now, you can impress or irritate your friends this upcoming Samhain with your newfound knowledge. Explain to them, perhaps over some punch with some jelly eyes floating in it, the historical reasons that you are all there, dressed in spandex, or felt, or makeup, Teach them, all about the theological and political origins of the festival, that has you melting in the incredibly thick and heavy costume that looked so good in the shop, but really is not practical for a night of fun. I'm speaking from experience there. I promise that people will be hanging on to your every word, and that is a History of Witchcraft guarantee. While you have their enraptured attention, feel free to let them know where you learnt all of this. Thanks again to Joe from the 80 Days and Exploration podcast. Joe, Mark, and Luke produce an incredible touring podcast from their internet powered balloon, where they cover all sorts of countries and regions you may never have even heard of. The second season of their show is only recently finished, where they talk about the history, culture, and people of Liechtenstein, a tiny principality nestled in the Alps. Easter Island, famous for its heads, and the Biro Bidzan, the Jewish Autonomous Oblast, an attempt to create a Jewish homeland in the 1930s Stalinist Soviet Union, and many more. Go check them out, I can highly recommend them. 80 Days can be found on all good podcatchers, and they also have a Facebook page, Twitter, and a website, 80dayspodcast.com. All that's left for me to say is, Happy Halloween, and to wish you a Merry Sowin. Thank you for listening to this episode of The History of Witchcraft. If you've enjoyed the episode, please consider leaving me a positive review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast app you use. You can visit the website at thehistoryofwitchcraft.co.uk, where you will find my contact details if you have any questions. The show also has a Facebook page and a Twitter feed if you want to keep up to date. The intro and outro music have been provided by Sounds Like an Earful. Thank you again for listening.